Murder in the North, Episode 17, The Short-Tempered Serial Killer. Tisdalen is a small town in Norway, some 120 kilometers south of Oslo and not far from the Swedish border. Over the years, it has been engulfed by the town next to it, Holden. The town's origins are typical for Norway. The development of the timber industry brought both new people and prosperity. These days, Tisdalen has a population of 30,000, but it's primarily known for a spate of killings carried out by a well-to-do robber and murderer, a man who wouldn't be found until many years later. His story begins in 1991, when a brother and sister are found stabbed to death in their own home. It turns out to be a very hard case to crack. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Driving his silver Honda Accord, 72-year-old Cora is on his way to see Anna and Osa. He has just been to the pharmacy and, as usual, he has collected their medication as well. The brother and sister rarely leave the house and Osa has mobility problems. It's the 4th of September 1991, a quiet and unseasonably warm Wednesday morning. Cora parks his Honda on the drive, walks to the front door and knocks. When nobody comes to the door, he enters the house like he normally does to leave the pharmacy bag on the kitchen table. But when he looks down, he sees 78-year-old Osa's blood-covered body on the kitchen floor. The police arrive within minutes and also find Osa's younger brother Arna, aged 74, hidden outside under a corrugated iron sheet. The two elderly people have both died from multiple stab wounds. These murders are only the beginning of what will be a few very violent years for the people of Tisdalen. The brother and sister lead a quiet life and don't see many people. Most of the locals think they're a bit eccentric and reclusive. The day before the bodies are discovered, Anna had been to the dentist to have a new crown fitted, while Osa went to the bank to withdraw money, a total of 63,000 Norwegian kroner, 
or just under £5,000. The two usually have cash at home, and it's Osa who makes sure that the money is carefully stashed away in small tins all over the house. After the dentist's appointment and the visit to the bank, the siblings take a taxi home. Experts at the Forensic Science Department in Oslo believe that the murders took place that day, on Tuesday the 3rd of September, between 8 and 9 in the evening. The house is carefully combed through by forensic specialists, who soon establish that cash and other valuables are missing, including the money that Osa took out from the bank. The perpetrator has left size 9 footprints in a few places around the house. The shoes have a rather unusual profile and are from the brand Mephisto, a piece of information that the police decide not to share. They're quite heavy shoes, designed for use in winter. The investigators think it's odd that someone would wear these on a day when the temperature reached 30 degrees. From the outset, while they wait for the forensic reports, the police entertain a few different scenarios. Neighbours and shopkeepers are interviewed, and the local population is asked to come forward with any information they might have. Lots of tips come in, but only a few are worth a closer look. Several family homes close to the crime scene have been burgled recently, and around the time of the murders, several witnesses say they saw a red opal parked nearby. A newspaper deliverer who drives a red opal cadet is questioned, but any suspicions against him prove to be unfounded. The many tips mention a total of 486 potential perpetrators, of whom 75 are questioned. The police are particularly interested in individuals with previous criminal convictions. Given the fact that valuables were taken, the police are looking for a burglar, possibly someone addicted to drugs. Witnesses report seeing two drug dealers near the house. At that early stage, they're seen as potential suspects. But then, there's a breakthrough. The police find a fingerprint in the house. The brother and sister tended to keep to themselves, so there's every hope that this discovery means that the case will soon be solved. The fingerprint belongs to a male relative, and according to forensics, there's sufficient evidence that the man must have visited the house quite recently. The man is arrested, and later that same day, his identity is made public. He's held in custody for three days and questioned at length. But he denies all the allegations. His last visit to Osa and Anna dates back several years. The strain of being interrogated leads to a nervous breakdown, and the police conclude that there's no point in continuing. Aside from the fingerprint, there's not much to go on. They release the relative and cross him off their list of suspects. Meanwhile, the coroners have revised the time of death to the morning of September the 4th, 
a few hours before Cora came to drop off the pharmacy order. This means that all the suspected individuals will have to have their alibis checked again. A woman comes forward, claiming that an acquaintance asked her to hide bloody clothes and a knife. The man is known to the police, arrested and charged, but just as quickly released again when the woman retracts her allegations. On the 13th of February 1992, there's a short article in the local paper. The police investigation has now been underway for 154 days, but hasn't produced any results. Detectives from Kripos, the National Criminal Investigation Service, pack their bags and return to Oslo. The local police in Holden take over. But it won't be long before Kripos will be deployed in Tistadalen again. A year after the murders of Anna and Osa on September the 1st, 1992, 71-year-old pensioner Per disappears from his home in the same neighborhood. He hasn't been seen by anyone, and his hunting rifle, which normally hangs in his living room, has gone too, as have his Volkswagen Golf and his bike. A huge search involving helicopters and police dogs gets underway, and the car is eventually located in a remote area about a kilometer from Per's house. The special unit from Oslo, Kripos, is deployed again, and thinking they may be dealing with a suicide or an accident, they start searching the area where the Volkswagen was found. But the investigation seems to be going nowhere. Per has disappeared off the face of the earth, in Tistadalen, meanwhile, apprehension is mounting. Per's house is not far from that of Osa and Anna. The rumour mill is in overdrive, and the presence of a special police unit doesn't make the residents of this small community feel any safer. Soon after, the worried locals have even more to speculate about. This time, the victim is not a pensioner. After a long day at work, 54-year-old shopkeeper Carl Johan sits down behind the wheel of his car. It's the 23rd of December, 1992. He puts a bag on the passenger seat, starts the engine, and exits the car park. But then suddenly, someone in the back seat jabs the barrel of a gun into his neck. The man tells Carl Johan to keep calm and carry on driving. When Carl Johan sits up straight in his seat, terrified, the gun goes off. Carl Johan dies instantly. The perpetrator steals the bag on the passenger seat and hurries off with the loot. A couple of hours earlier, the conscientious shopkeeper had gone to the bank to deposit a record turnover of some 70,000 kroner, or more than 5,000 pounds. It wouldn't be wise to keep so much cash in the shop over Christmas. And so, the assailant doesn't pocket any money. The bag contains two litres of milk, that's all. 
Three murders and a missing person. For a small town like Teesterdalen, this is no small matter. And it means that the residents are now afraid to venture out. Three witnesses spotted a man in blue overalls and brown safety boots in the area the day before Christmas Eve. Shoe prints are secured at the crime scene and in the adjoining street, which enables the police to identify a potential escape route. From the Tista, the local river, the police retrieve a pair of size 9.5 Softane work boots and some extra-large overalls. One of the pockets contains ammunition, a 16-gauge shotgun cartridge. Across the river, the police find a boat and two oars. And not far from the riverbank, a pair of carefully mended blue ski gloves. Both the shoes and the overalls are found to contain traces of metal and welding work. The police believe that the perpetrator is local, or at least familiar with the area, and that he fled some of the way by bike. The ballistic analysis yields new findings. The bullet in the overalls can be linked to an unsolved bank robbery in Holden. The ammunition suggests a double-barreled shotgun made by Liège, a Belgian manufacturer. This type of weapon predates World War II and is quite distinctive. It has two hammers instead of one. The unsolved raid on the bank was captured on security cameras, so the police can now draw up a detailed description of the perpetrator, and in particular, of his clothing. Blue thermal coat and trousers, a blue knitted hat, and welding goggles. The man is thought to be around five foot six. Ballistics also reveal that the ammunition was made by Gitorp. The bullets involved in the two separate cases were made in Sweden and came from the same batch manufactured in September 1991. This type of ammunition is sold in Denmark and Sweden, but not in Norway. The investigation now gathers momentum, and before long there's a new and crucial discovery. In March, three months after the deadly attack on shopkeeper Carl Johan, two boys are playing football near Per's house. When one of them goes to retrieve the ball, which has ended up on a compost heap, he spots a watch among the rubbish. He kneels down to pick it up, but the watch is still attached to what's left of a human hand. It belongs to Per whose remains have started decomposing inside the compost heap. He has multiple stab wounds in his neck, but given the state of the body, it's difficult to ascertain when exactly he was murdered. With so many similarities between the brother and sister killings, the shopkeeper's fatal robbery and Purr's murder, the police decide to combine the separate investigations and hunt for a single perpetrator. This is announced at a press conference on the 31st of March, when they also reveal the many pieces of evidence and the video footage of the bank robbery. 
The detectives receive a great many tips from the local population. Some of them mention a neighbour who'd been spying on Purr, as the pensioner himself had said. The man in question owns a double-barreled hunting rifle of the type that was used in the bank robbery in Holden. One victim thinks they recognise a relative's voice on the security camera footage. The list of suspects now contains the names of four men who are potentially of interest to the police. The list is topped by Purr's neighbour, Roger Hagland. The police decide to take a closer look at Roger Hagland, as there are a few things about him that don't add up. He lost his job in 1990 and hasn't found a new one since. But this doesn't seem to have curbed his spending in any way. He has built a sizable extension to his house, and his BMW is always in tip-top condition. Shortly before he was made redundant, he took out a second mortgage on his house for 850,000 kroner, the equivalent of nearly 65,000 pounds. The bills are piling up. Roger is the only child of wealthy and deeply religious parents. As a child, he attended a private school and would sometimes help his mother with deliveries for her tailoring business. It occasionally brought him to the house of the siblings Anna and Osa. In the school playground, he often got into fights with the other children because of his fine clothes, but also because he flaunted his wealth. In his teens, he did a lot of unskilled labour and got into trouble from time to time. When he worked as a chauffeur, for instance, he was fired for stealing. His former colleagues don't have one good word to say about him. The same is true for his neighbours, who claim that Roger is involved in some shady dealings. At 20, he married a Swedish girl and they had three children in short succession. As soon as they've gathered enough evidence, the police decide to arrest Roger on the 30th of April, his wife's birthday. Somehow, the press get wind of the fact that finally there's a suspect in the case, and even before the police arrive, journalists gather outside the Hagland family home for comments. Roger is taken to the police station to be questioned in connection with six murders and robberies, those of Anna and Osa, of shopkeeper Carl Johan, neighbour Purr, and two additional murders in Gothenburg in 1990, an unsolved case of the murder of couple Olof and Wendella. Gothenburg is only 190 kilometres from Tiestedalen, about two hours by car. Roger's wife is Swedish and her parents live just across the border in Stromstad, barely 35 kilometres from Tiestedalen. The police decide to search both Roger's house in Norway and his caravan, which is parked on land owned by his in-laws. During the search, his father-in-law points out that Roger has also stored some items in the barn. In the hayloft, the police discover parts of a blue bicycle made by Diamond, when they check the serial number, it's found to be Purr's old bike. 
The Kripos Task Force, which is deployed in cases involving organized crime and other serious offenses, is responsible for interrogating Roger. Roger has his lawyers by his side and seems cooperative. The detectives take their time, and gradually a mutual trust develops. There may be a glut of evidence, but the police are still keen to extract a confession. On the 12th of May, after several weeks of questioning, Roger indicates that he's ready to confess. It's obvious to the police that Roger has soaring debts. The four robbery murders, the bank robbery, and the failed robbery of the shopkeeper all point to one motive. Money. But Roger has an entirely different explanation for his actions. On the 20th of May, he talks at length about the killings of Osa and Anna. Apparently, back when he did deliveries for his mother, Osa had called him a spoiled little asshole. Grown up now, Roger went to demand an apology. He wanted Osa to say sorry for her comments. But, as he puts it, he lost his self-control and stabbed her with a knife that was lying on the kitchen table. After that, he scoured the house in search of valuables. When Anna caught him in the act, Roger stabbed him too, dragged him out of the house and hid the body underneath a sheet of corrugated iron. Likewise, a war of words is what led to Purr's murder. The two men had been embroiled in a quarrel. After Roger trespassed on Purr's property and trampled his vegetable garden, Purr had called him a bloody criminal. Hearing this, Roger blew his top and ended up killing Purr with knives and a drill. The murder of the shopkeeper had been an accident, Roger explains. He never intended to shoot the man. When he sat back in his chair, the rifle had gone off accidentally. Roger makes contradictory statements, which he then retracts again. While on remand, he reads about another case which is all over the papers at the time. The main person of interest in this case is a murderer and rapist called Edgar Antonson, who has committed suicide. Now, suddenly, Roger pins the blame on Edgar Antonson, who can obviously no longer be questioned. But Roger's allegations are quickly dismissed as unfounded by detectives. Antonson's victims were women and girls, and his murders clearly had a sexual motive. Meanwhile, the police and the prosecution service prepare for the trial, which gets underway in April 1994. There's a great deal of evidence, and there are plenty of similarities between the four Norwegian murders and robberies. But when it comes to the double killing in Gothenburg, there's not enough evidence to proceed to prosecution. That's why, in the end, Roger is charged with four murders and a bank robbery. In the courtroom, Roger looks very amiable, and he's all smiles. The 55-year-old has grey hair and a full beard, and is dressed in light blue jeans and a striped shirt. He doesn't strike the judge and jury as particularly menacing. But during the course of the trial, 
his temperament changes. He behaves strangely, especially when he's talking about himself. He uses the phrase, the person in question, when describing his own actions, and he occasionally refers to we instead of I. He doesn't have any mental disorders, according to a psychiatric report, but he's said to be emotionally numb. The only time he shows any emotion is when his own family is mentioned. Roger is handed the toughest sentence available under Norwegian law, 21 years in prison and five years on probation. This kind of harsh punishment tends to be reserved for dangerous criminals who pose a high risk of reoffending. Roger appeals in the hope of avoiding a prison term, but the Supreme Court rejects the appeal, and on the 26th of April 1994, Roger starts his long sentence. On the day the verdict is announced, it's revealed that Roger had planned to escape from prison by taking a hostage. As a result, he's immediately transferred to the maximum security prison in Olesmo. After 13 years behind bars, Roger is released in 2006. By then, he's 68 and seriously ill. He moves into a small apartment in the town of Stroman, where a home care worker finds him dead five years later. In the only interview he ever gave, Roger is asked whether he described himself as short-tempered. His reply? I have strong opinions, and I rarely back down. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts.